So hello, 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 and welcome to Remembering Us, the storytelling of everyday people dedicated to racial justice and healing. I'm one of your co-hosts, Ellery, and I have my beautiful co-host, Miss Lisa here. Hey, everyone. So we just want to say, one, we're really grateful for all the feedback about our podcast and enjoy hearing what you think. And definitely encourage you to reach out if you're so moved to share your thoughts, feedback, anything that came up for you. Uh, you can reach out to us at rememberinguspodcast at gmail.com. And please share the link to the podcast to anyone, a friend, a neighbor, a family member, as you feel called to. We really appreciate that in moving conversations. And so... Yeah, so we are here to add momentum to what what we are all doing in the world and how we're showing up in this world towards anti-racism. And we know the effects and violence of racism in this country are felt every day. And while we believe healing as essential part of the work in how we show up in the world, how we shift culture and the interpersonal violence and relationships, we know we also need to show up actively in reparations, in changing infrastructure policy, institutional change, in organizations we work with or interact with, and the influence and connections we have, no matter how big or small. So we do want to offer this. We um, have a donation page, a GoFundMe. The link is in our description. Um, We will be using these funds to support compensation for our guests of color who share their stories, their expertise. Um, and we believe, of course, as two white women hosting this podcast, we feel it's important to compensate and respect the time and ideas and gifts uh, that our, our guests bring up. And uh, this money will also cover small costs like our editing software, but we also have larger goals for this. We know we can move mountains together. So please check out the link for more details, but we will be also donating the funds above those two costs to BIPOC organizations, BIPOC-led organizations making badass change in the community, supporting healing of the everyday effects of racism. So check out the link for more details. And today we have the honor and the special opportunity because we are joined by Gregory Mengel, an educator, a writer committed to social, racial, and ecological healing. And both Lisa and I have been in his affinity healing spaces that he's led. And for over a decade, Gregory has been helping white identified individuals and groups examine their racial conditioning and assess their inherent potential for transformation. He's a co-founder of Beyond Separation, which offers classes and workshops for white identified people. And in addition, he's been a senior teacher at the Untraining, this excellent training here in the Bay Area, the Untraining for White Liberal Racism. And he's also a community teacher at the East Bay Meditation Center. So... Gregory's written the, for the Good Men Project and The Body is Not an Apology, as well as Medium and Cosmology of Whiteness. Really good. I was reading some articles last night. So before we dive in, I know it's a lot of words, but before we dive in, we just want to do a short, short grounding just to center us in the moment. So just to come into our present space, wherever we are, we're on the mall or we're sitting at home, standing, wherever we are, just taking a minute to settle into the space 
And finding our breath here, finding a deep breath, eyes open or relaxed gaze, wherever we are. And taking this moment to find both our feminine and masculine energy. Our feminine energy, the intuitive sense, the deepest wisdom within us, the receptive door within us for divine energy to come through. Yeah, we breathe that in. And we find our masculine energy the energy that allows us to take action in the physical world to shape the world around us through our actions and beliefs and that intuitive wisdom. We take one more deep breath in, feeling both these energies present. And letting it out and coming back to the space. How are you feeling, Gregory? How's it going? I feel good. I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to be reunited with you two. I, I know Ellery a little better because you were in my small group at Eastman Meditation Center for a yeah. whole six-month program. But then, Lisa, you were in Beyond Separation. So, yeah, it's just sweet to be reunited and to see you guys carrying this work forward in this way. So, diving in... We, um, in this series, are focusing on the process of becoming white and the stories that we find in, in our past and our family's journey around this. And so, Gregory, can you speak to your family's origin story and especially anything relating to the process of becoming white? I can. Um where to start? So lately I have like, I've developed like two lenses on my origins around this stuff. So I have the, the lens I've been using, thinking through for a while now is, it starts with, you know, I grew up in Portland, Ohio, which is a, a white, very, very white suburb of Youngstown, Ohio, which is a Rust Belt, steel town. Um, it was a major steel maker in the 20th century. And all of that sort of collapsed in the 70s and 80s. But I was sort of insulated for most of that. I was living in the suburb of Boardman. And it was almost about as close as you could get to 100% white. I rarely ever saw a person of color without leaving town um, in my hometown or in my school, especially. Um, my school was so white 
this is not the beginning of a joke, that um, my senior year in high school, I went to a Halloween party with a group of my friends dressed as Klansmen because we thought that would be funny. And it was 1981. So there were no consequences from this. Like other people also thought it was funny and there was no social media and nobody had a phone camera. So there's no record of it to come back and haunt me now, thank God. Um, but, you know, I, I, I didn't think about that for like 30 years or something. Like when I got into um, the untraining, when I started, like I did my first untraining, I'm sort of jumping time here, but when I did my first untraining uh, phase one, um, we came to like meeting five and there was this question, what was the most racist thing you've ever done? we were supposed to reflect on and i'm like huh and then i was like oh shit it just came flooding back and i'm like oh my god yeah so but really the moral to the story is that there were no consequences that nobody found it disturbing or alarming and yet you know the dominant ethos was like racism or race wasn't really relevant like nobody, nobody thought, oh, here we are in our white enclave, you know, separated from those people of color or those black people who live right across the border in the city. We didn't talk about it at all. And we never talked about why. It was just sort of understood that, you know, this is how things are. And I never thought to ask. And, and I also remember this felt like an important part of my childhood growing up is that my family, our story about ourselves was that we were not racist because we didn't use the N word in our house. That was very strict. Like that's a bad word. We don't say that, but other people do. And we believe, you know, we're, we're against discrimination. We're against racism. Right. But yet we didn't take action around that, like we didn't, we didn't talk about like why things are the way they are or that there's some kind of institutional or structural or systemic reason. We didn't talk about the fact that discrimination is the reason that our society was segregated the way, or our town, our neighborhood was segregated, right? We didn't talk about redlining. We didn't talk about that the neighborhood where my parents, well, let me say this and then let me, um, Take it back. So I'll say it first. We didn't talk about the fact that the neighborhood where my parents bought their house, they could only buy that house because they were white. That house was not available to people of color. At the same time, we did because I remember my mom. It's interesting as I go back and I think about my childhood, almost all the things that I learned about racism were from my mom. Because I guess because she was like, when I was little, she wasn't working until I was like, she got a job when I was like 10 or 11 years old. So she was a stay-at-home mom and she would just, I was there and she would talk and I was listening. In hindsight, I was listening and she would say things like, you know, if, a, if black people moved into our neighborhood, it would be okay, except we would have to sell our house because we would be afraid the real estate values were going to go down. But it wouldn't be because we're racist, right? It would be because 
we had to. And I was like, okay, put that somewhere that I will drag back up in 40 years and reflect on. But at that time, you know, I was like, oh, okay, that seems weird. I don't know. But so what I was saying is, yeah, our story was we were not racist. We didn't say the N-word. I had friends my own age who they would make a distinction. They would, like everybody claimed, even when I was in high school in the late 70s, early 80s, nobody claimed to be racist, right? It was already like uncool to be racist. But what you would, what people would do is they would distinguish between good black people and those other black people that it was okay to use the N-word to refer to because uh, whatever, because they were different, that they were, I mean, they were poor, right? They were poor, they were suffering from segregation and discrimination and all these things. But of course we didn't have that language. Uh, we just concluded somehow that the stereotypes that we have about black people were true of some black people, but not other black people. That was basically the framework. And that, you know, that I sort of accepted that as common sense, although I still didn't believe in using the word for anybody because I was raised not to use the word. And I, I took that seriously. I mean, it's a, it's a nasty word. It, it, it denigrates people. It dehumanizes people. And I still on some level believed the principle behind that distinction that I just described, right? On some level, those stereotypes felt like I had no way of not believing them, right? I had no analysis or no foundation for understanding anything else. They did live in a very different way and they looked different and they acted different and they talked different. And I didn't know any personally, black evil at all until I was in my first post-college job. That was the first time I met any black people and they were college educated black people. So again, that just reinforced the distinction, right? That didn't undermine it. Yeah. One of the things like that I'm thinking about in listening to your story, Gregory, was this theme of language and, and especially in the, even your growing up that you were aware of at the time that there was enough language to create a narrative to know that, okay, it's bad to be racist. We don't talk about race. And what that creates is just this lack of, of language. And then I'm thinking about what you're doing the way that I know you in the world, which is working in affinity groups with white identified folks. And so much in my personal experience in those spaces was to gain language around understanding my identity, understanding what it means for me and this white skin to be in the world, how, how I've been created in a culture and how I have impact on others. And so I'm wondering, can you speak a little bit to, to language and the limitations when we have a narrow narrative? As human beings, we, we live in stories. We are stories. Like Gregory's a story, right? Like my identity is constructed out of stories and I have a story of who I am and what it means to be who I am. And so, so there's that like on a personal level and then collectively, right? Collectively, what's our story collectively? I mean, one of the things that Beyond Separation like starts off with is this, this idea of like the new and old story 
of whiteness, right? There's an old, old story where whiteness doesn't mean anything. We're just neutral and unmarked individuals moving through the world like blank slates, pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps and working hard and achieving something. And, you know, there's no systemic forces or whatever. Then there's a, then there's a story of, no, actually white people are privileged and entitled and shitty and bad, and we should feel bad about it. Right. And we need to like make amends and which is true. And this, this isn't a question of true or falseness, but it's a story rooted in, it's like switching. It's like switching from like the invisible supremacy to a visible deficit. Like there's something wrong with being white now. And then there's another possible story. There's a possible story where we're all human and we have conditioning and we've been harmed by this conditioning in the sense that not in any, not anything remotely comparable to the way that folks of color have been harmed by white supremacy, but we've been harmed relative to who we would be without it, right? And that harm is a disconnection from parts of ourselves. It's an inability to connect with folks who are different. And it's the creation of a society that ostensibly provides us with advantages, but actually doesn't work for anybody. And so how do we tell a story that is, lifts everybody up, right? That sees everybody as having dignity and having a potential for true belonging. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of narratives that we have to deconstruct in order to get there. And a lot of them are hard to see because they become common sense or they become so, in some, some ways, common sense. This is another thing about stories. In some ways, common sense isn't what we say. It's just what we do or how, how we live, right? It's, it's the things, it's a, as we move about the world, just doing what, what's expected of us and what we think we're supposed to do is enacting these hierarchies or these injustices and, and taking advantage of them because it's the path of least persistence uh, and it's comfortable. This is another one of those areas where it's like, I don't want to, like, there's a, I know people, people I love who, who want to tell the story about how white supremacy is harming white people that downplays the ways in which it's enjoyable, right? It's almost like, it's not acceptable to talk about how enjoyable that comfort is, right? We're supposed to, as, as these anti-racist white people, we're supposed to be like, there's a cost to whiteness and that's our motivation for doing this work. And you know, that's true. It's not that that's not true, but the reason that we're not doing the work is because it's also comfortable and not just in superficial ways of that, like the comfort of not having to talk about race, right? The comfort that is often talked about in anti-racist discourse, which is we don't talk about race because it's uncomfortable. We don't change our society because mm. we like having our kids go to really good schools and if we were to make sure that everybody could go to schools that were equally good, it might cost us something. It would cost us something. 
I don't believe it would cost us anything that actually matters that much, but we're so addicted to, I mean, and this is what, this is part of being human, right? This isn't a white thing. It's a, it's a dominant group thing, right? Dominant groups, people with power want to keep that power and they want to keep everything they can get with that power. It's kind of what people do, right? But it's, we don't recognize that the extra things that we're getting through that power that we have aren't necessarily things that make us happier or make our lives richer. And we're afraid that if we lose anything, we'll lose everything because precarity is also, precarity and scarcity are so deeply woven into, right? Like we are taught that we live on this ladder. And if we let go of the rung that we're on, we'll slide all the way to the bottom. And then we've created through that ladder, people who are already at the bottom, who are there to remind us how far we have to fall. I truly believe that we could create a society that works for everybody um, better, works, works better for everybody. I'm, I'm careful not to make utopian claims that we can make a society that is, works perfectly for everybody or that is absent of conflict and dominance because we're humans and we're imperfect and we're selfish and we're, and we're also loving and we want to belong. Like we're complex, contradictory beings, right? I don't know if that answered your question. But yes. And, and yes. And then some, I mean, also, you know, you're bringing in this concept of that I think really speaks to something I think about in terms of as anti-racist, there's the policies that need to be changed. These are the structures these, that need to be broached. And, and yet the same cycles, the same systems keep bubbling up in this, this theme that you're speaking to of getting honest, getting real with the comfort of, of these privileges, the familiarity. And so I'm curious about in terms of hierarchy and that this is, you know, a theme of, of dominance is where you see the intersectionalities of, of whiteness and, and male supremacy, where, how those intersect and how do you, you know, as, you know, Gregory in the work that you're doing with all these folks, how you step into that, that, that complexity. Oh, right. Male supremacy. Um, yeah, this is something that I've really started thinking about in the past few years. I'm really deeply exploring this aspect, which started with noticing that almost everybody who's showing up to these white affinity groups that I've been leading for the last decade are women, female identified folks. And so where are the men? Why are they not coming? And then just thinking hard about that, I did a little writing about that, which you can find on the Good Men Project. Um, part of it is that the way we do the work in those affinity groups really resonates with feminine ways of being, for lack of a better word, right? Like we, we do a lot of feeling and talking about feeling, which is just more accessible for those who have been conditioned as women because... The conditioning of us as men is to extinguish that capacity, to punish 
that capacity when it shows up, right? So, so naturally, like we forget how to do that, or we bury that, we bury that impulse, right? To notice how we're feeling and to talk about, especially if it's, if, especially if it's a feeling in the, in the vulnerable side of the spectrum, right? Like we can express anger right. and disgust and outrage mm-hmm. perfectly fluent in those emotions on those, that end of the spectrum. But when it's like scared or confused, unsure, then it's like, well, I need to not mention that because I might experience violence as a result. This might be a good time to bring in the fact that I'm queer because that feels really relevant here because my conditioning was incomplete in that way, right? I experienced that conditioning, but it didn't completely take, it took to a significant degree. Don't get me wrong. It's been a lot of work for me to get to the point where I could talk about feelings, vulnerable feelings in groups or at all. But there was an opening there. There was more of an opening there because the traditional expectations of me as a male identified person never really fit. Right. So I always felt like, oh, I'm not, I'm not a real, like what, like a real man already, you know, I'll, I'll just mention Paul Kibble's concept. Well, Paul Kibble would say that it's not his concept. He just wrote it down. It came out of the Oakland men's project, but it's the act like a man box. And so it's this box inside of which are the behaviors that are acceptable for real men, which is, you know, showing strength, not showing vulnerability, knowing things, being dominant, this kind of stuff, being tough, stoic. And then outside of that box are, you know, being scared, showing tenderness, being queer, (laughs) clearly, solidly outside that box. And so I didn't, I couldn't get in the box. Basically what I'm saying is I couldn't get in the box all the way, but the conditioning still did its work, right? It still did its work. And so I still had a lot of unpacking to do around that. And I had a lot of time in these groups, in the untraining or in other groups that I've done over time of feeling like, oh, I'm not doing it right. I can't do it right. I don't know how to do it. Like everybody else in the room is doing something, talking in a particular way. And I don't feel like I know how to do that. Right. And then finding over time that there's both that I can learn through practice to do that and that I'm going to do it in a different way. And this is the real kicker that the things I need to talk about when I, like when I go to my most core conditioning, the parts that most cut me off from access to my full humanity, they are aspects of my male conditioning, which I need to unpack with other men, right? That, the, that these mixed groups or especially female dominated groups are not really the best place for that. Because for one thing, y'all don't need to hear that shit. And 
it would be like as a white person, like trying to do your work in a group that was dominated by folks of color, like it's not the place to do it. So one of my conclusions is that men, like white people, need affinity spaces. And I've discovered doing that, that it's an unbelievably liberating space, that it's pulling teeth to get men in the room or on the Zoom to start the conversation. But once they get there and they realize that, oh, the rules of the man box don't apply here, that we're creating a space where it's okay to t talk about who you really are. It's just, all, you wouldn't believe what happens. It's just like a whole different thing emerges in terms of the way that people can share and talk about who they are, which puts a lie to the idea that we're irreparably damaged, right? We're not irreparably damaged. We're not irreparably cut off from our humanity. But there's something about the dominant culture, the way the dominant culture operates, which makes it almost impossible to access that until a space is created where it's allowed and welcomed and rewarded. It's powerful. Powerful. I feel like it's that moment of unlocking the secrets behind the secrets behind the secrets. And in your work, feeling this opening, this vast opening, and you're not new to this work, right? Of unpacking whiteness and privilege and what anti-racism means. And this piece of it in the full complexity of you as a being in different identities what has been some of those moments where you feel so many other men are missing out? So many other white identified men are missing out. The first time I went to a Billy gathering, the Billies, the Billies are a group of gay men in Northern California, San Francisco and Northward that formed in the eighties around the AIDS crisis. And they've continued to be a group that has potlucks and gatherings, which are like retreats that you just go for like a weekend or a week and just be together and share and hang out. And I remember the first time I went to one of those gatherings, feeling a sense of belonging, a sense of, oh, I can be exactly my whole self here that I'd never felt in my entire life. That was radically revolutionary for my body to like actually be able to let go of all of my heteronormative, internalized homophobic defenses and just be, you know, here I am, I'm this, you know, and I have nothing to hide here, right? That, yeah, that feeling, which I haven't thought about lately, um, changed me. It changed me. It, it, it opened up a possibility for me that, that was new and that I want everybody to have. And what I recognize now is that I didn't, like I was able to have that in a stark way because I went from living predominantly in heteronormative spaces and not being out in those spaces for a lot of my life, like not up to that moment, but for way more of my life than I wish. I had just taken on this defended posture 
into my body in a way that I didn't even feel it anymore. I feel like that is a case for almost all men in our society on some level, right? There's some level that from like age five, we've taken on a defended posture because we're always in danger of being called girls or queers or whatever it is, like having our humanity denigrated because we have failed to stay in the box, to act like a man box, right? And so, and that's a terror that I think many, 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 many men of all stripes live with. It's interesting because, I mean, thank you for these personal stories. And it makes me think about, you know, the power of and the importance of doing this personal excavation that I think you're speaking to and in, in the way that you approach your life is being in groups where people are um, doing the mirror work, are going inward. And there's these two wings, there's the external and there's the internal. And I know for me, I've started on this path in a very internal looking way and and then also, you know, wondering how that translates and how I'm interacting with the world, with my community, in the classroom, how I see people, how my body is responding when I interact with people, when I'm in rooms with people. And so in all of your personal experience and experiences, that experiences you've had with people in doing this more internal work, what value do you do you see and have you experienced in really doing this, you know, the, the mirror work? Great question. This is complicated because I have parts of myself that are like, oh, it's all navel gazing and pointless. <laughs> right? There's always that voice there hounding me and telling me, oh, I should be like doing some kind of activism, political work, whatever, whatever. And yet there's a bigger part of me that's really called to do this work that really feels the value of this work. I don't even think of it as being specifically about racism, right? It's about racism, but it's about the way that we've lost our connection to our humanity and each other on a number of dimensions. And and one of the things we do in the untraining is we try to not become a particular way, but become more fully ourselves because we believe that there's a basic goodness. That's the word we use. There's a basic goodness to our humanity. And, And I would say that becoming ourselves is not the self-help aspirational self, which is sort of individualistic, but it's a fully permeable connected self, right? That is not attached to the particular story that we've told about ourselves. Untraining has an annual workshop for people who've been through phase one and phase two called risk of the self. And so that's what that's getting at is like, we have a story and we are afraid of having that story interrupted, but that's the only way that we can become liberated is to interrupt that story so that we can be more fluid and permeable in our experience of ourselves and the way that we show up in the world. And I feel that that project is valuable. I can't 
describe exactly the connection between that and dismantling white supremacy or capitalism or any of the other isms or hierarchies that constitute our society. But I do feel that those stories that we have about ourselves that we don't want to interrupt are exactly what those hierarchies or those systems use to perpetuate themselves, right? Like if we all were able to become liberated from ourselves, the stories of ourselves, that those systems would have nothing to hook into, that the political leaders would have nothing to grab onto to try to convince us to be afraid of those people over there coming after us or those people over there taking what we earn. They rely on the conditioning, right? The, the bullshit that we've been fed about who we are and who we're supposed to be. So you're saying we get so connected to the story of I earned this leadership role or I earned this career I'm in or I earned this and that comfort that I have. Are those the stories you're talking about that? Yeah, or I just, I am this kind of person. Like I am a good person. One of the things that gets in the way of white people looking at the way that we perpetuate white supremacy is our attachment to the story that we're good people, right? I can't be perpetuating that harm. I'm a good person. It's not me. It's those other bad racist white people who are doing that harm. It is. So how do you hold those seemingly contradictive things, the cling to the good white person identity and the basic goodness, the humanity part that we need to understand and feel of ourselves? Right. It's a practice of non-attachment of trusting that what I really want in my deepest, deepest soul and heart is connection and belonging, is to experience that myself and to make space and opportunities for other people to experience that. And the way to do that is not to shame them for the way they've been conditioned. That doesn't work. It's to love them, right? It's to love them unconditionally so that they can learn to unconditionally love themselves. That is Shout out again to the untraining. Our mission is that people can learn to love themselves so much that that love changes the world. I get that that's very abstract. And some people might hear that and go, blah, 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 white people, bullshit. But, you know. No, no. Because white people can be the meanest to each other. I experience it all the time. I get around white people and I haven't been all day. And I'm like, girl, why? So judgmental, so stuck on defending yourself when nobody was attacking, right? The internal judgments of perfection and, it, and, it's, and it's abrasive. It's abrasive. Yes. One of, the th one of the stories that we tell in white anti-racist spaces about becoming white is that there was this original state of belonging when we were connected based on ethnic identity. And then we traded that in for whiteness and individualism. And we lost sense of connection and belonging that was related to our ethnic culture. But when I was reading this book recently about working class identity in Youngstown, they were deeply multi-ethnic communities. They were connected by class. They were connected by their union membership, by their life in the mills by their shared situation, barely getting by and having to fight against 
their exploitation by the mill owners. And so they did things like walk out in the middle of a shift because one of the people in their community was being mistreated by the foreman. They had that kind of solidarity. And that has obviously been lost. <laughs> that has obviously been lost. That any kind of like solidarity of that sort we've lost. And we've also lost that sense of material interdependence. We've fled that sort of material interdependence because that's the trajectory of social mobility in our society. And so it's a mystery to me. It's an unanswered question to me how we get back there and regain that sense of belonging that we long for, that is human wholeness, mm. is living in that sense of connection. Like I believe that we can only experience our full humanity living lives of belonging. Yes. But we're not going to like do the Jesus' disciple thing and throw away our material access. So the like somebody might do that, but our, as a society, we're not going to do that. So what does belonging look like? What kind of belonging and interconnection and interdependence can we create? Yeah, I don't have an answer, yeah. but I feel like a lot of the discourse around it is superficial. You know, like Gregory, I really resonate with so much of this this story you've just mentioned because my family is in Western Pennsylvania and Pittsburgh area and coming to a different place. When I, when I came to California like eight, nine years ago, I was not in a material bubble of comfort that I had been in, in the past and experienced a new way of living, which was interdependence. And when I slowly realized that part of my roots in Pennsylvania also still live like, and they, my grandfather, I'll go to the gas station. He kicks it at the gas station. He's 96 years old, kicks it at the gas station. And his buddies come up who are, you know, 20, 50 years younger than him, just start going in on him, making jokes. You know, we had to take the donuts away from the last time we saw him because he ate them all. And just, but just digging at him in the most loving and connected way. The ones who show up for him when he had to go to a retirement home because he broke his leg. The ones who show up in church next to him and check on him. And that sense of people truly knowing each other and know how to get under each other's skin in the most loving way. That I feel like both of you were saying, the, the extending that is there without the racism. How do we extend that humanity without these us and them qualities to it? The, the separation, like you've mentioned. And and doing it, knowing that there are different levels of wealth that that in capitalism that do separate us inherently. And how do you get to the vision? How do you get to that place where we are interdependent? Then what is it? Is it that cost that we have to give up that comfort that has to be given up? It's a really interesting place. But there's a lot of other people who just, they're just living in a story that's not serving them or the world. And they, they long for something different and they don't have a path. And how do we, and the we here means anybody who wants the world to be more 
connected? How do we connect? How do we build connection and belonging? How do we care for each other? Yeah, that's like through this transition toward whatever's coming next, we need to care for each other. And that's one of the things that we've forgotten how to do. Well, I appreciate these big questions. What is belonging? Because I think it's personal too. What is belonging? What does care look like? What does interdependence mean? How does it look? How does it feel? How does it play out? I think these are really good questions to guide where we're going and to be led by these questions and to let the questions continue to unfold and let the belonging continue to you know, transform and grow. Yeah, I think we'll find our way. Um, which I say not as a utopian, right? Because I think it will always be messy. And I think there will always be suffering and there will always be meanness and unkindness because people are people. But I believe in harm, harm reduction is my, my hope for a way forward, you know, finding ways to care for each other that we already do care for each other, right? But how can we care for each other better? more expansively and more unconditionally. Yeah. And a big piece that comes to my mind is listening, being in, in these conversations. What does care look like for you? What does care feel like for you? So a lot of it is listening and being in relationship. Yes. Relationships. It all comes down to relationship. Right. Yeah. So, and one, one curious question I have, because... I know the intellectualizing and the facts and the science that we can get into and, and the other piece of, of spirituality, one thing that we can get disconnected from sometimes, what practices or spiritual beliefs ground you in this work? I believe in belonging. Belonging is my North Star. I'm grounded in practicing spaciousness. You know, in the untraining, we have a, a formal practice called the multidimensionality practice, where we um, cultivate both a sense of groundedness in our own compassionate, tender, loving, brokenhearted care for the world, and a sense of unconditioned spaciousness around the various parts of ourselves that might be in contradiction to that, that are conditioned and the other parts of the other people that are also conditioned and making space for all of that so that inherent healing processes can unfold or or that we can move toward our deep intrinsic longing for healing and community and belonging. I believe that it's possible for us to move in that direction. That is my deepest spiritual belief. And that is my practice as well. The multiplicity of it all. The bad, ugly, the beautiful. So just want to thank you for your your openness, your vulnerability, your rawness. You keep it so real, Gregory. It it was so easy to be like, oh, we're just going to get to this lovely little place, rainbows and sunshine and no racism, and it's great. And I, I appreciate your authentic, Mm, truth and 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 the presence that you bring in that it keeps it honest it keeps it honest so thank you for being here gregory thank you for the work you do in this world 
You're welcome. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I just appreciate this process so much. I appreciate getting to get into both like the granular of a story of a person, the trajectory of a person from my looking back, coming forward, because it's your personal story. And there's this universal concept in the reality of we are where we come from, what we've experienced, what we felt, what we've seen that shapes it who we are now and then in effect shapes where we're going and so being aware of the context in which we come from both on a personal level and you know a cultural societal universal world level it it's really informative and it's grounding and it's humbling and then there's choice in holding all of you know the multi-dimensionality of us in the moment so so yeah appreciate this me too yeah, it's awesome to be in dialogue and just have the space to to chew on these really, really, really hard problems. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. So until next time. Till next time. <laughs>